0: Open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter two, Luke in chapter two, and if you didn't bring a copy of Scripture with you this morning, that's fine. If you look under the chairs in front of you, you'll have a copy of the Scriptures there that you can borrow, and and uh, it will be the same translation I'm I'm preaching out of here. And by the way, if you're our guest today and you do not own a Bible either with you right now or even back at home. We want to give you a free Bible. Stop by the information desk this morning. Uh, If you're our guest for the first time, we have not only a Bible there to give to you, but we also have a coffee mug and a couple of other treats. It's just a reminder of your first visit here and an invitation to return. Luke in chapter 2. You've probably all played games at the holidays and different types of games come in and out of fashion, but there was... There was a game a couple years ago that seems to to stick around. It's a game where you hear three words and you have to guess what they have in common. You want to give this one a try with me? Here's the first one. Families, trees, and hair. What do they have in common? What? They all have roots. Well, you aren't good at this game, are you? I don't want you on my team. (laughs) I'm going to give you another one. You ready for this? Say the answer if you think of it. Soldier, tennis player, and waitress. They all serve, good. Okay. Okay, that was pretty impressive. Here's another one. An open coke, an opened coke, a punctured tire, or Carrie Zauner's voice. What do they all have in common? They're all flat. You're right. You got it. Very good. turning into a hostile crowd. What do you say, Carrie? (laughs) I have one more. I introduce this one. Ebenezer Scrooge, the Abominable Snowman, the Winter Warlock, and George Bailey. What do they have in common? Here's the answer. They are all Christmas movie characters who go through a radical... Personal change. Full disclosure here, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll be honest with you too. Do you ever cry during a good Christmas movie or a good Christmas book or even watching a good Christmas play? Do you ever have tears show up? Not allergies, tears. I want to know what pushes your cry button at this time of year when you're watching or reading something. For me, what pushes my cry button is seeing a radical personal change in a character. That's what captures me every time. I guess that's why I'm drawn to a hillside just outside of Bethlehem where I find a small band of shepherds in the middle of the night. I'm drawn to this story that I see in Luke chapter 2 Again, look at verse 8. In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. Verse 8 just captures me. Why is, why is the lens, the camera of Scripture now panning just outside of Bethlehem where there are shepherds in the dark, perhaps huddled near a fire, but they're alone and it's dark? Why are we going, in verse 8, to the shepherds? What's so unusual about this particular band of shepherds? I'm struck with what they were in verse 8, and listen, what they become in verses 16 to 20. Look at verse 16. So they, these same shepherds we met in verse 8, so they came in a hurry and found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. And when they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child. And all who heard it from the shepherds wondered at the things which were told them by these shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. I mean, what were they when we met them in chapter 2, verse 8? What were they? A couple of things. They were unnoticed. If you were a shepherd in that day, you were definitely unnoticed. Why? Because you were locked away in the wilderness with the sheep most summers all the way through November. You were unnoticed. And carrying into the winter, you remained out of sight because you were very concerned with The birthing of the Passover lambs, which they would need later in the spring. And so that carried you into the chilly and the frigid dark nights. You had to stay with them, not just because of birthing, and not just because of straying sheep, but also because bandits would be on the move in the shadows, coming for your sheep. You usually worked, I'm told, in three-hour shifts back then, but you were unnoticed. You see, for the common population, you were out of sight and you were out of mind. But not only are these shepherds unnoticed in verse 8, but they are also unloved, big time. You see, in this culture, they were extremely untrustworthy characters. Shifty, definitely rough around the edges, survivors, fighters, protectors. Most of the population didn't trust them. As a matter of fact, in the Jewish culture at this time, they would allow no testimony in court from a shepherd. As a matter of fact, beyond that, in this Jewish culture, there was only one people group in the Jewish mind lower than a shepherd, and that was a leper. If this is you in verse 8, you are unnoticed, you're unloved, but that's not all. You were unclean. And we're talking about the temple now. We're talking about religion. You were ceremonially unclean. Because you were locked away, if you can put it this way, in the wilderness with the sheep, you had not record and not good attendance at the temple the different sacrifices, the different prayers, the different gatherings. You just weren't there. And in the Jewish mind, you couldn't keep up with all the extras of their religious system. And even the Mishnah declared shepherds, quote, under a ban. Those are the shepherds in verse 8. That's what they were. They were unnoticed, unloved, and unclean but what did they become and we saw this in verses 16 through 20 they became eager theologians and they're suddenly interested in theological and historical research they became not just eager theologians they became energetic evangelists having a message to share And they also became enthusiastic worshipers. No need to be at the temple for this kind of worship. It came out of them. How did this change happen? The difference that one night can make in just a few hours on that one night. I want to know what happened to bring about such a radical personal change with these shepherds. And our text gives us that answer. The text says that a chorus of angels had delivered one awesome message to them. We see that message in verses 9 through 14. Specifically, the shepherds discovered three realities from this angelic announcement. And I just want you to briefly see these three realities that changed them from what they were to what they are now. What are these three simple realities? What brought about such a radical change, an awesome change? It's an angelic chorus. What are the three realities? Number one, my greatest problem is solved. My greatest problem is solved. You say, greatest problem? What's the greatest problem? Well, in order to get an answer for that, I want you to look with your eyes through Scripture, and I want you to see what they saw. Look with your eyes and see what they saw. Look at verse 9 of chapter 2. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. we got to use our imagination, because even under inspiration, Luke has to do his best to describe what this must have looked like. Off in the hillside, there's no ambient light in the, uh, to, to, to make the stars grow dim. There's no street lights, there's no store lights. They are on the hillside, maybe with a fire, and everything else is pitch dark. And somehow in that moment, from the realm that we can't see, the spirit realm, the spiritual realm, There was a tear and opening and light just flooded out around an angelic creature, an angelic being who was standing suddenly, illuminating everything through this fissure, this whatever film this is that that separates the material and the immaterial world was, was torn for a moment. And darkness didn't leak into God's realm, it's his light that leaked out to ours, overtaking this scene on the hillside. Theologians call this glory the Shekinah glory of God. It's the radiance of God. This is the radiance of God that we see around God's presence in Scripture. I believe it was a glimpse of it that Moses saw at the burning bush where the bush appeared to be on fire but it wasn't consumed. I believe there was a yet larger glimpse but only a glimpse in the sky as the children of Israel traversed the desert from Egypt to the promised land. In the evening there was a pillar of fire by day. As they set up the tabernacle on that journey there was glory that, that, that was so consuming that the priests and the Levites couldn't minister, and it's the same later when Solomon built his temple. The glory was light, but it was described in its movement like smoke, but it wasn't our realm corrupting this God's realm, the spiritual realm. It was the other way. It was his glory coming into ours. It's light. It's radiance. I believe this... Uh, is the reality that was described at the transfigura- transfiguration of our Lord with his disciples during his earthly ministry? You say, is that appropriate? Yes. It's the same glory. It's the glory of heaven, the abode of God. It's the glory of the realm that Jesus came from when he came from his Father in the same realm he returned to after his resurrection and during his ascension. Just just look and see what they saw that night. The same radiance. But it's interesting, in the examples I gave to you of the expressions of Shekinah glory throughout Scripture, it was usually pretty localized. It was in a bush. It was in a tent. It was in a temple. It was on the top of a mountain. With Jesus at the transfiguration, but this night, with these shepherds, it filled the sky. It filled the sky. Can you see what they saw? No wonder the angels had to say, do not be what? Do not be afraid. Yeah, right. I want you to see what they saw, but then I want you to listen. I want you to hear what they heard. Look at verse 10. Chapter 2, the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. I want you to hear what they heard. They just heard three titles coming from this angelic realm, through the radiance and the words they heard the names they heard were savior and christ and lord the word christ as you know is the word messiah and immediately we're understanding that this is the promised one from the old testament going all the way back to just after the fall in genesis And promised over and over and over through the history books, through the wisdom and poetry and through the prophets, this little baby is him. And that second phrase, that second word is the word Lord. That's not a first name, that's a title. And when you see Lord, it's not just the guy that's in charge of the room right now, it's the one who's Lord over everything. In the Old Testament, this is Yahweh himself and then we have that word savior. You say savior from what? Rescuer from what? in the occasion of Matthew 121 it's a savior from our sin. From our sin. Wow. Are you hearing what they heard? You see what do you mean? Someone had come for them a Savior for them. As you know, the rest of the story, this baby will grow, and at the, thir- the three-decade mark will begin a public ministry for approximately three years, and then he'll go to the cross. And what he suffers on the cross is not for his sin. What he suffers on the cross is the full absorbing of the wrath of God due Every sinner, including me, and including you, and including them. You know, I like the story. I've shared it before where a little boy is in the kitchen of his house and suddenly starts screaming, just screaming. And his dad comes running and says, what's wrong? Like, is one of your arms missing? What happened? The boy's screaming and, and crying, and, and he points on the wall, and on the wall there's a, there's a yellow jacket a bee, a wasp. And his dad walks over and grabs the bee off the wall and holds it in his hand for a few moments. And then he walks to his son who is still very cautious, and he opens his hand, and there's there's the yellow jacket still alive, sitting on his dad's hand. And the dad says, I want you to I want you to pet this this bee. You can touch it, it's okay. And the little boy Sprung back again in fear and says, Dad, no, he'll sting me. He'll sting me, Dad. And the dad says, No, he he won't sting you. He's already stung me. You're safe. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what, what has been absorbed for those who will place their trust in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life. The sting of death is sin, Paul would write. He's a savior. Who suffered fully the sting that was due us? That's why Paul says in Romans 6.23, the free gift of a God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. I wonder if you're here or watching and you've never accepted this free gift of eternal life. I'm not asking if you're religious, I'm, I'm asking have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ alone for eternal life? Or are you hiding behind good works? and decent attendance, and that's it. There's been no repentance from your sin, no growth in becoming more like Jesus. It's, that's still out there. You're just here. I have good news for you. If you come to Christ and confess that indeed He is God, sent to be your Savior, and that He suffered the ultimate wrath of God that was due you, and rose again from the dead, Victorious and you place your faith in him, alone for eternal life. Death can't hurt you. So you're, you're looking and seeing what they saw. You're listening and hearing what they heard. You say, "Well, what is the greatest problem? The greatest problem is solved. The greatest problem is sin. And it's been solved. We heard from the reformer from the 16th century already in our time together in this service, Martin Luther. It's interesting that Martin Luther delivered close to 5,000 sermons in his lifetime. But it's also interesting to note that of those 5,000 sermons, over 60 of them were preached from Luke chapter 2 and John chapter 1. on On the nativity, on the incarnation of Jesus. And so here Martin Luther again on this topic, quote, examine yourself and see whether you are a Christian. If you can sing, the son who is proclaimed to be Lord and Savior is my Savior. And if you can confirm the message of the angel and say yes to it and believe it in your heart, then your heart will be filled with assurance and joy, and confidence. And you will not worry about even the costliest and best that the world has to offer. End quote. Yeah. See, what caused the big change in those shepherds? The angels. That's what they said. And these shepherds understood, number one, my greatest problem is solved. But there's a second reason for their radical and personal change my greatest fear is calmed my greatest fear is calmed look at verse 13 of chapter 2 and suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host stop there What, what do we do with this word host what does that mean like I'm hosting Christmas dinner no As you know from scripture, the word host there is actually a military term in the Greek. It's a military term meaning a lot of them. I remember when I was in Virginia Beach, and and a couple of the guys that would come to the the Navy SEAL Bible study would get chatty some nights, and I just kind of lean in and listen to them. I want to learn about them. But they never would give me a straight answer on one question How many of, of you are there? How many seals are there? Not just on the East Coast, but on the West Coast altogether. I've seen some round figures, and every once in a while you get a somewhat consistent answer from them. But there's a there, there's some sort of a desire to stay anonymous. And one part of the SEAL teams that won't answer the question at all is SEAL Team Six or DEVGRU. They don't want their numbers really made public. But I'll just say this, there's enough of them to take care of us. But even the numbers they could give me do not constitute a host. This is not just a host, this is a military term with, a, with an otherworldly adjective. It's a heavenly Host. I think of what I read in Revelation 5.11. Then I looked, John says, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands." thousands. As one commentator puts it, this is an army announcing peace. Wow. A heavenly host. And by the way, the angels that are involved in this scene They're not all excited because they get to see Jesus for the first time. They've known him all along. You remember these words from Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. And the seraphim, the angels, stood... Above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out, and the temple was filling with smoke. Shekinah glory. Oh, these angels... They knew this baby long before they spoke with the shepherds. How do you know that, Jim? Because in John chapter 12, verse 41, John writes these words. Isaiah said this because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who's the him? Jesus. The glory these angels have seen in Isaiah 6 are the, is the glory of the second person of the Trinity. Jesus. Jesus. Our Kent Hughes, as he comments on this verse, says, "These are pent-up angels bursting forth with wonder and praise." But look, look at verse 14. At the end of verse 13, it says, "This heavenly host was praising God and saying, "Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among men with whom He is pleased." Interesting phrase. You see, when it talks about the, uh, the glory to God in the highest, God in the highest, that points to the very sovereignty of God. Not just that He's at the highest point at the tippy top of space in the cosmos, though no, He's the most exalted overall. He rules and reigns as the Creator. And these angels are praising God above for all that's happening here below. On that hillside outside of Bethlehem this night. God is here. One of the names given to the Lord at his birth is Emmanuel, God with us. You see, what do you mean my greatest fear is calmed, either for the shepherds or for me? I mean this from this phrase, God in the highest, we have our answer. What is man's greatest fear? Man's greatest fear is that God is distant, he's disconnected, and some would even say he's dependent or he is powerless to rule and to exercise his providence. But this phrase, God in the highest, tells a different story. Perhaps you're here and you feel just lost when it comes to parenting. You feel confused when it comes to marriage, when it comes to your place and your assignment at this point in your life. You have questions about his will and what he's working in you, whether it's your finances, whether it's how foes are assailing you. Maybe you feel the role of a victim. It's like, where is God? Your greatest fear is that God has left you alone to figure it all out. But, since he's God in the highest, Psalm 115.3 says, Our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. Ephesians 1.11, he, there's, it talks about the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Psalm 135, verse 6, whatever the Lord pleases, He does in heaven and in earth and in the seas and in all deeps. Isaiah 46, 10, God says that He declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Let me just say this, what was behind the change of these shepherds? It's knowing that their greatest fear is calmed. They're not lost and unnoticed out on some dark hillside for like their whole life as a shepherd. God is with them, and he's with mankind as he has sent his son to be the Lamb of God. God is still on the throne, and that baby in the feeding trough is proof. God's sovereignty is a sweet... Sweet reality. You know the name Johnny Erickson Tata who because of a childhood accident, diving accident in Chesapeake Bay has lived her entire life without any feeling, totally paralyzed from the shoulders down. Probably she's a good one to ask as she nears the sunset of her life. Do you think God's in control? I mean you had to press through life with this suffering? Well, she wrote a book in 1987. title of the book is God in Control. This is Johnny. And she writes, Nothing is a surprise to God. Nothing is a setback to his plans. Nothing can thwart his purposes, and nothing is beyond his control. His sovereignty is absolute. Everything that happens is uniquely ordained by God, Sovereignty is a weighty thing to ascribe to the nature and character of God. Yet, if he were not sovereign, he would not be God. The Bible is clear that God is in control of everything that happens. That's our greatest fear, that he's not. And the news these angels deliver is, he is. Even as one of the prophets, Habakkuk, says in Habakkuk 2.20, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. But I believe there's a third reminder, a third reality that the angels gave these shepherds that changed them. And it's this, my greatest mission is clear. Look back at verse 14 before we finish. And on earth, peace among men With whom he is pleased. With whom he is pleased. That last phrase is a phrase of grace and mercy and initiative coming from God. When mankind replies, responds by God's grace to his offer of grace and mercy, they experience peace. It's a fascinating statement i got a spider up here with me. Excuse me. Bye-bye. There he goes. What's worse than the spider that's not there anymore? I don't know where he is. <laughs> if I start demonstrating karate in a moment, you'll know what happened. Peace among men with whom he is pleased. I'm indebted to the Bible knowledge commentary, which summarizes this phrase with these words quote God's peace is not given to those who have good will rather it's given to those who are recipients of God's good will and favor yeah, yeah. the angels are telling through this bright display that covers the horizon perhaps the largest display of Shekinah glory up to this point in the Bible I mean, it's happening with shepherds. And the message they have is, God is saving. God is rescuing. And man must respond. The old British preacher, G. Campbell Morgan, uses these words. The heavenly host was chanting the anthems of welcome, not merely a welcome to the baby, but to the new race. The race that will spring from the baby. The baby is the second man. The baby is the last Adam. From that child, the son of God, child of Mary, born and laid in a manger, from him will spring the race which shall satisfy divine demands and please the heart of God. Peace there is. Peace for them. God is doing a sovereign work in the world. Listen. And he commissioned the, the shepherds that night and he commissions us this morning to be his tools for carrying out that message and that mission. And the angels got it. I like what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5:20, "We are ambassadors for the baby. We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. This phrase, from the angels to the shepherds, provided them confidence, instant. It provided them instant clarity as to why they exist. They just learned that night with that statement, oh, we're just shepherds by trade, but we have a higher calling. And that phrase provided in that moment an urgency, and made these shepherds emissaries. The great missionary C.T. Studd used to say a very well-known statement, quote, Some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. He C.T. Studd, and these shepherds, and us, are commissioned. Our mission is clear, to get the message of this word out. Whatever our trade is, that's what pays the bill. But we all have the same calling. And it's being an ambassador for God. You see, how do you explain this radical, personal change of these shepherds? It's just what happens When a soul learns that their greatest problem is solved, their greatest fear is calmed, and their greatest mission is clear. You say, well, what kind of change happens? You show me not just a shepherd, but someone at Christmas in 2023, a believer who has a fresh understanding of the manger has a fresh thrill and awe and reverence for the Incarnation. And I'll show you the birth of yet one more eager theologian, energetic evangelist, and an enthusiastic worshiper. You say, well, I, I have to grow in those areas. I, I, it's, been a, it's been a cold, stale year for me spiritually. Well then, my friend, I invite you this week to linger long, at the celebration of Christmas on that hillside with these shepherds who were so radically changed. It was Charles Spurgeon who said to his congregation in a Christmas service, feast, Christians, feast. You have a right to feast, but in your feasting, think of the man in Bethlehem. Let him have a place in your hearts Give him the glory. Think of the virgin who conceived him. But think most of all of the man born, the child given. And then he finished his sermon with these words. I finish by again saying a happy Christmas to you all, end quote. And I finish his sermon with a hearty pastoral Merry Christmas to you all but don't let it just be sentimental this year. Linger long, hang out with these shepherds until you too start moving about like a theologian and a worshiper and a missionary. Lord Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for the celebration, the young voices and the more experienced voices, the readings, even voices from through time in church history. And thank you for how you split open the barrier between our world and the spiritual realm and allowed the full blaze of your glory to overtake the complete dark night sky to where there were no shadows. There was a simple message and it forever changed these shepherds. And I pray it will change us who call you Father. Yet again this year, may the change be ours. And I pray for any here under the sound of my voice who have never accepted you as their Savior and their Lord. I pray that they will call out to you today, acknowledging that they're a sinner, confirming with what Scripture says about you that you are the infinite God-man who came and who died, who rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand, according to the scriptures, and you offer them eternal life. May they reach out and accept that by faith and repentance today. Move on their hearts. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.